You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Oneofus.net and all of the shows on it are 100% subscriber supported. Please consider becoming a subscriber to oneofus.net. Keep the site and all of our great shows going and get some terrific bonus content as well. Oh my god, people, it's time for Digital Noise! I feel like there should be sound of applause and maybe some sort of... Dun, 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 yeah, the dun, air dun, horn. The little... <laughs> rah, 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 little like, no, 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 no. This isn't a <laughs> Longhorns game. <laughs> <laughs> That's what people... Don't they, don't they honk those when they get excited? When they get hype? I feel like... And I think my wife would bag me up. I'm less of an air horn guy and more of a... Guy. Yeah. She's like, you're old. You have tilts. Uh, we are going to review all the home releases. I'm joined by John Golson. Hello. Relieved to see that you're feeling better. We were originally going to put this out right before South by, but man, mm-hmm. you got hit smack down hard. I did. I got something viral and it made me I talk like this for like a full week. Uh-huh. Uh, but my, and I, it's like funny. Peter Nyongo's doppelganger and us. I think what happens is the older you get, and I, I find this, at least for me, the older I get, the more that when I'm sick, I can't rem- it's like I can't remember when I was well. Yeah. And I think, well, this is just my new normal now. Like, <laughs> I'm going to feel this way every day. I'm going to be this stopped up. I'm going to talk like this every day. I just, you just better get used to it. Like, I don't know what it is about, cause when I was younger, I didn't think that, but I find when I'm, now that I'm older and I get sick, I always fall back into this, like, this is my fate. Yeah. You're quoting <laughs> audio logs like, like Sarah Connor, like day 27 after judgment day. It's so fun. That's so, that's so ironic that you bring that up or so serendipitous. I, that's actually what I did while I was sick is I watched all the Terminator. Are you serious? That yeah. Was just fuck it. Let's yeah. Do that. I had not seen Genesis and I had not seen the director's cut of salvation. And so I watched all the Terminators. Uh, so I'm ready for dark fate. Is that what this is called? Dark Fate? The newest one, Dark Fate. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't like it was going to be like The Party as the subtitle. Yeah. <laughs> Terminator. Terminator, whatever. Terminator. Good times noodle salad. <laughs> good times noodle salad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to picture what that would even be. <laughs> I don't know. We built a new range of stronger Terminators, faster Terminators, we Termi- it- Terminators that can cook tofu. We sent him back to wish you a, a happy birthday. It's like stuff that instead of like, he's got to protect you from death, he's got to ensure that you have a good time. Come with me if you want to sing karaoke. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, I hope someone makes at least a sketch comedy piece out of that. Maybe you. You're the comedian. I'm just saying. Um, Before we get started, I just want to say a big thanks to the subscribers. We cannot do this without you. There are four tiers of subscription here at oneofus.net at different price ranges where you get lots of good bonus content uh, that gets added on all new stuff all the time. Please think about becoming a subscriber. It is the only way we can keep this show and all our shows going. And like I said, you get some cool bonus stuff. So neato with more, uh, more stuff being added on all the time. We just added a Facebook private group just for subscribers at any level where we do the occasional live video and behind the scenes stuff of stuff like the gathering or you just did a ton of exclusive stuff during South by didn't you? We didn't do as much as I wanted to because there's that point. I was like, ah, shit. I totally forgot that I'm actually on a by the gig plan. Mm -hmm. And so I could only do it at places where the Wi Fi was actually working. 
working and usable enough uh, for it because otherwise it was going to like I was going to pay like six times my normal rate right. on my phone. But we did put a few things up there. I guarantee you there'll be some stuff going up this Saturday night when we do our episode of The Gathering. But anyway, let's get into it. And we've got a lot of stuff to talk about because they were I had to bring you a second load during South by just to go. Here's some more. Yes. <laughs> Watch these. Uh, but we're going to start off with Academy Award multiple nominee A Star is Born. I believe the fourth no it's the third remake of the original film so it's the fourth version of this since 1937 and that's not even counting the various broadway productions of a star is born that have happened but this is one of those bizarre properties that pretty much every version of this is quite good i don't know what it is about the story there's something that despite its predictability despite you knowing more or less even with little tweaks here and there more exactly what's going to happen because it's one of the most familiar stories there is it always manages to kind of drive a knife in your heart a little bit, you know, like it. Yeah. And I think this one is no exception. It's really, I, I didn't got not get to see this when it theatrically premiered. I can get to see this till this 4k came out. And I'm, I'm kind of sad that, that I didn't see this in a theater because director Bradley director and star Bradley Cooper, who this is his directorial debut. Shockingly made this film like he's been doing this his whole life. It has a very polished, almost like, um, you kind of forget what movies use. Well, sometimes you, you, I feel like we sort of take for granted what movies used to be like, uh, sort of star driven and really like well polished and adult. Um, and this felt like a throwback in a weird way and not a throwback to like a really long time ago. I just feels like in the past two decades, maybe that movies have gotten away into more, more global filmmaking and costumes and superheroes and stuff like that. Sure. And this felt to me like something that would have been right at home and like sort of that, the nineties, like that last vestiges of really the movie star driven adult drama. Um, and I had not seen a movie that felt like that in a long time. So it was very, it was, it's, it was refreshing in its, uh, in its throwback. You know what I mean? Like it was sort of like, it felt it felt new simply because I'd been thirsty for it and didn't know that I had sort of missed the the blockbuster adult drama. It yeah. was a mo- it was a type of movie that existed forever and ever and ever. And we've I feel like America or the world have moved away from making blockbuster adult dramas. Yeah, now it's like if there are adult dramas, they're little indie films. Yeah, and maybe you'll get some big stars in them, but they certainly rarely get a big wide release. Uh, this is a blockbuster adult mm-hmm. drama, and you're right. I mean, it has all that look. You can see every dime that's put into it. It's real pretty. <laughs> it's very well produced. Um, Lady Gaga is, is like, comes out swinging. We already yeah. knew she could act. We didn't know she could act this good. Um, still wish she would just, as in, you're like, you're an actor now. Go back to your real name. I'm just saying. It's always <laughs> awkward to me. Like, just, just, I'm so glad The Rock went to Dwayne Johnson. I was like, thank you. Cause it's weird talking about movies you're in and say, so The Rock does this. I don't know. I'm not a wrestling guy, though. Or really a Lady Gaga music guy. But still, she's great in this movie. And I, it's, I mean, I know you guys have seen plenty of memes about it, but it really is palpable, the chemistry between these two leads. It's, it's, they, I almost never use this term, but it sizzles. You know, watching these two fall in love on screen, watching their, their, the rise and fall of, of Bradley, well, not even rise, the fall of Bradley Cooper and the rise of Lady Gaga. I mean, not much of a spoiler considering, like I said, this yeah. is the fourth remake. It's a, he's really good in it too. He, he's almost he's chameleon-like in it. And he, uh, 
performed and sang all the songs, mm-hmm. unlike, weirdly, the Oscar winner for Best Actor against him, Rami Malek, <laughs> who did not. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're great together, and that's only part of the appeal here. I mean, I think there's great side casting across the board in this thing. Sam Elliott playing uh, uh, Bradley Cooper's half-brother, who basically his whole Bradley Cooper's affectation is an impression of Sam Elliott, which the movie acknowledges. Uh, and it's quite good. Uh, Dave Chappelle as his best friend in a nice, I'll be somewhat thankless role, but like has some really nice moments in there. Uh, Andrew Dice Clay has a decent turn as, yeah. as Lady Gaga's father. I, yeah, and you see little Greg Grunberg necessary cameo. Everyone, Greg Grunberg must be the nicest guy in the world because anyone he's worked, anyone who worked with him on Alias, casts him in anything else they do. <laughs> you know, like there's always every JJ Abrams vehicle, there's Greg Grunberg in there somewhere for like one line. <laughs> it's like, oh, they love him. And Bradley Cooper, of course, got his big start on Alias. So Is he the big guy? Oh, I'm sorry? Is he the big guy? He was It's in the Star Trek and Star Wars movies. Uh he's, he's in like, Star Wars. He's he was uh in here he was like the the driver for Jackson for okay. for Bradley Cooper. Um, yeah, he plays an X-Wing pilot, rebel yeah, guy yeah. in the okay, Star Wars who films. I'm thinking of, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you'll see a lot of movies with Abrams where he just has, like, literally a walk-on, and that's it. And you're like, yeah. damn, everybody must love that guy. J.J. <laughs> Abrams, as far as I know, had nothing to do with this, but Bradley Cooper, there you go. Uh, so did you ultimately say you enjoy this? Like, I think this is kind of essential watching for films of 2018 for me. Yeah, it was one of those movies I, I went, well, I I can tell from the trailers what it is. And I don't know that I'm going to go out of my way to see that. And then when I watched it, I was like, oh, it was exactly what I thought it would be. And it was the best possible version of that. Yes, that's the uh, best way I think you could explain yeah. it. And, and again, really, uh, I really enjoyed its old school, big star Hollywood vibe. Mm-hmm. And it's gloriously shot. It's beautiful to look at. It's a film that deserves to be seen on 4K. Mm-hmm. Or in the theater, if you can still find it playing somewhere. Uh, the extras that come with this is a 30-minute The Making of A Star Is Born. Uh, there is uh, rehearsal musical performances of several songs from here, which are actually very entertaining and worth watching. If you enjoyed this music, which I can't imagine that you didn't in this film, then this is more of that. Uh, there's music videos uh, related related to or from the movie. And then, um, all, and then one thing where you can just watch, if you just want to see the music scenes in the movie, it goes through it now strangely and this is becoming more and more common with big films these days on home releases there's no deleted scenes included here at all and i was like that's weird and literally right after i watched the 4k they put out an announcement we're re-releasing a star is born with 12 minutes of added footage i'm like well that's why yeah (laughs) you know i was thinking the same thing we'll get to at the end aquaman like no deleted scenes so now i'm just setting my watch for when they go the re-release of Aquaman with 12 minutes of additional scenes. Oh, well, uh, but yeah, this is, this is great stuff, man. It's a hard week for me to say, I, I'm, you know, hmm, I'm like scanning, scanning down our list. I think I'm actually going to have to say that this is my personal pick of the week hmm. of everything in this. There's a lot of good stuff on this list we've got, but this is the one I think I'm going to return to again and again. I'm old softy. <laughs> Uh, our next one is a 4K release of an older film from 2005, Lord of War, directed by Andrew Nichol uh, and starring madman Nicolas Cage. Now, I know Nicolas Cage has become very much 
back in vogue in a almost sort of ironic appreciation sort of way. But yeah. there's nothing, there's no question that like Nicolas Cage at 11 is more fun to watch than almost any other actor. Even if it's not necessarily what I would describe as good acting, it's way fun to watch. Uh, now this isn't really Nicolas Cage at 11 though. No, this is kind of a, I don't know. It's not cliched so much as it felt kind of tired to me, the storytelling. And maybe that's because I really am not the biggest fans of films that use a nonstop narrator as a storytelling technique. It also feels like a movie that has been made a few times, mm-hmm. even even after this, after Lord of War. I think we saw the same movie with uh, Jonah Hill and uh, uh, yes. what's his name from... It, that was a little more comedic. Yeah, but. and then we had a Brad Pitt version of this movie that was a Netflix exclusive, and um, and to some degree, honestly, like I was thinking about this in regards to timeline, and I'm like, oh, it's kind of funny that Iron Man, the Robert Downey Jr. Iron Man, sort of follows some of the same beats, at least this cliche character of the charismatic, uh, suit wearing, sort of nouveau rich arms dealer. Uh, is sort of like cut from the same cloth as this. I, I think the first time I ever saw a movie like this was like Deal of the Century. Yeah. You remember that one? Oh, yeah. And it With feels Chevy like Chase. something, yeah, it feels like something Hollywood keeps returning to is this romantization of the, of the, uh, suave arms dealer who's like kind of in over his head. Um, <laughs> yeah, to teach us all a lesson about, yeah, this looks cool. But then they're sad. Yeah. <laughs> and sad things happen. I thought I had this – when I saw this originally, I had a friend who really, really hyped it up. And when I watched it, I was like, eh, it's okay. Yeah. And so I didn't remember much about it going into watch it this time. And I still walked away and went yeah. like, oh, it's okay. I'm the same it's, way. Yeah, it's right before Cage kind of got into his uh, sort of tax shelter movies, right before he got ripped off and had to sell his comics in his castle and started doing movies just simply to keep his finances above right. the float. Um, which it, a lot of which are considerably more fun to watch than Lord of War, yeah. which is one that he was wanting you to take seriously. <laughs> and this is This is a... Uh, this is a perfectly fine movie about arms dealers. It's lightly comedic. It's lightly dramatic. It doesn't, I don't feel that it has, um, enough to make it stand out from the pack. Yeah. Even, even, you know, cause what it really is when it, when you get down to it is if you try to, you try to, if you want to pigeonhole it into something, it's basically a character study, mm. but it's not even a particularly like sharply drawn character study. No, he's not that in like, heavily detailed of a character. It's like all the things we know about him are kind of weirdly feel like surface details that don't really play into us feeling like he's a real guy or getting to know him as a person. He is a very shallow human being though. I mean, I mean, he's an arms dealer, (laughs) you know, Ukrainian refugee, eldest son, who's firstborn American, uh, living in Brighton beach, who basically says, you know, I don't want to live like this. I don't want to grow up working in a deli. I'm going to go out and sell guns. Because that seems to be where the money is. And it's a very sort of, like, this is America type narration stuff. Look, we love bullets and money. And, you know, we get it. We've seen this a lot. This is also obviously heavily nods to Goodfellas, which does a similar sort of thing at points, but so much better and with more finesse. There's no subtlety here either. Um, Jared Leto plays his younger brother, who practically is wearing toe tags when he shows up. Uh, you know, um, uh, Bridget Monahan plays a love interest who's given all but nothing to do in this film. Uh, I don't know. It's okay. Like you said, it's just there's <laughs> nothing about it that you go, 
oh, yeah, that's one of those movies I really love. It's one of those movies you go, oh, yeah, I did see that. Yeah, Lionsgate's being pretty aggressive with their 4K releases, which, you know, more power to them. I'm sure. glad that they're taking their library and making sure that that's accessible in the best possible format. So there are fans of this film, and I know that there are people out there who really love it. Yeah. It, it's a nice-looking film. The 4K, you know, is, is an improvement on the existing discs. Um, and, it even, you know, I watched the Blu-ray version, and even it was... Uh, was slicker, much uh, much more slick than the uh, than the DVD version. Yeah, they did in fact upscale. They don't always do that with with a lot of these new sets that have been coming out. Where often the Blu-ray you can tell is just remainders that was sticking sticking around yeah. in a warehouse. They didn't bother to upscale. Lionsgate appears to be on the whole doing that, and they even included uh, bonus features here that were not even available on previous Blu-ray releases with the 4K, which is nice. Uh, uh, some of these were. There's an audio commentary with the writer director. There's a 20 minute making of Lord of War. Uh, that is an archival piece, of course. Uh, ma- making of a killing inside the international arms trade is 15 minutes that uh, tries to take a look at, like, okay, you saw the movie, now here's, like, the stuff that, how this actually works. Which I always wish these type of movies would do more often. I always love it when, like, here's the actual history. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then there's six and a half minutes of deleted scenes. But yeah, I mean, I know people who love this movie to pieces, and I've never really understood what it is they're so passionate about with it, but... Hey, it's entertaining enough watch, I suppose. It's fine. It's fine. So another 4K release that you did not get to see, but honestly, you guys know. I mean, I'll briefly just cover this, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So if you've seen the Planet Earth series of uh, nature documentaries by the BBC, narrated by David Attenborough, this is essentially another one. It's called Dynasties, and it focuses on uh, on endangered species that have very strong and notable um, sort of family dynamics within them that they can study. So it's like dynasties ideas like, Oh, it's this family. And they look at alpha and how it transfers like from one alpha to the next. So obviously it starts with chimpanzees who have a disturbing and bloody <laughs> way of, uh, of that sort of thing. It goes on to emperor penguins, lions, uh, the painted wolf, and tigers, actually, just because of me, I like the tiger one the best. It's big kitties. Lions one was cool, but a little dull. Um, I mean, if you like these things, you know exactly. This is another one. It's the same team that makes all those others. Uh, it's David Attenborough, same guy who narrates all those others. It's absolutely gorgeous. And this is, I believe, the first time with one of these. They were like, oh, and all you people who don't own 4K yet, fuck you. You don't even get one because we're only <laughs> releasing this on 4K. There's no other version and it is one of those. I mean, this is, I own a lot of these because it's the best for when you're just trying to unwind. They're just yeah. so fucking relaxing. Turn off all the lights, turn the sound up high and just kind of fall asleep. <laughs> and it's just so much better in 4k. But yeah, if you guys, uh, if you like this sort of thing and you do, it's a great showpiece for a good, a new 4k television and stuff. You're like, okay, you want to show someone how pretty this thing is. This is the kind of shit you want to show them. Where it's like, holy crap, this are animated films. Yeah. Animated films always look terrific with this. Uh, there's a episode length on location, which is behind the scenes footage from all five uh, episodes, narrated by David Attenborough as well, which is essentially just another episode of the show. <laughs> just to focus on, here's how we got those shots. <laughs> like new technology that lets us shoot up close and intimate, but from a long fucking way away. <laughs> Because ain't nobody getting close to a bunch of lions when they're having alpha situations. Uh, let's move on to some retro releases from Arrow. First up is the 1945 
film noir, My Name is Julia Ross, based on the novel The Woman in Red by Anthony Gilbert. Uh, this was actually the first in a whole series of film noir directed by uh, Joseph H. Lewis. And, uh, well, why don't you, I've been talking, why don't you describe this one? Um, there is a young woman living in England. She applies for a job. Uh, she, she's, she's by herself, single, doesn't have any family. She's just enjoying her time there. She applies for a job and the people that employ her are basically, um, they're, they con her. Um, they, they kidnap her essentially and then gaslight her and tell her that she's this completely other, uh, different person, this different woman. And it becomes a struggle for her to try to get somebody to believe that she is who she says she is while the family tells everyone else, no, no, she's completely crazy. Yeah. And all this is done to cover up a murder, uh, that occurred in, in the family. Um, this is really good, really entertaining. Yeah. Uh, I, know, I like this one a lot. Yeah. <laughs> really compact little thriller. Just, uh, yeah. And it came out of nowhere for me. I'd never even heard of it before. Me neither. And, uh, yeah, it was really great. You know, is that you, there's a lot of, they get a lot of tension out of, Again, her either trying to escape or trying to find ways to convince people that she is who she says she is so that she doesn't have to live in this, like, completely upside down, uh, you know, batshit gaslit world. Yeah, with, like, a guy who is trying to convince her that she's his wife, and he obviously has really serious anger and violence problems. He's also, and I had to look up the word, and I can't remember the word now, but there is a specific word for people that are, like... Oh, you're a bibliophile. You love books. There's a word for that for people who like sharp, pointy things. Oh my god! And I had to, I looked up the word for him because I was like, oh, I have to find out what his deal is because throughout the movie, it's very obvious that he likes bladed objects. He mm-hmm. loves knives and letter openers and swords. <laughs> Red and, flags. And I was like, okay, what is that called? And I, lo- I looked up the term. You guys will have to look it up on your own because I can't remember the term. But <laughs> great, that was um, a big lead up to no payoff. Yeah, I'm sorry, but but the film did make me go look it up because I was like, oh, this guy's uh, yeah, this guy's a weirdo. He's a knife obsessed dude. I-, I think one of the things that makes this work so well is that you're right. It's just super tight. It's 65 minutes. It is in and out and it's a cool, wow, I did not see this is where this was going type of story with strong performances, well shot. I mean, it's not like one of those movies it's not like Rebecca or something where it's like in this enduring classic, but there is something about the story alone that's like, wow, this is like so good, I can't believe it hasn't been remade over and over and over again. And in yeah. fact, in 1987, there was a very prominent remake of it called Dead of Night, uh, or Dead of Winter, uh, directed by Arthur Penn with Mary Steenburgen playing um, th- that role and others in it. It's a it's a very loose adaptation, but yeah. it's just such a good story. I'm like, yeah, I would love to see someone else take another modern-day crack at this. I liked both of the... Uh, you said John H. Lewis? Was that the director's name? Yes. I liked both of the John H. Lewis movies. Or Joseph H. Lewis. Joseph H. Lewis. Excuse me. I liked both of the Joseph H. Lewis movies in this. And they're both very lineup. different films, too. Yeah. Uh, but uh, this one, which is definitely, like I said, uh, of the two, I preferred this one for me. Um, there's a commentary by film scholar Alan K. Road. There's Identity Crisis, Joseph H. Lewis at Columbia for about 21 and a half minutes, which is analysis of his directorial style and a lot of the themes of this film. And also takes a look at the lead actress, Nora Fiore, who was kind of a, she was kind of like a B-noir queen. She was in a bunch of noir films, but never really got to be like in that role that was like 
the one that no one would ever forget her for, but yeah. she was like this stalwart that was very reliable in these type of parts for a long time. And then uh, the trailer and an insert booklet. The other one we were going to talk about is So Dark the Night. That's a great title. Sounds like it's either a noir film or like a Bauhaus album. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, you were doing a Joseph H. L- the last Joseph H. List. Tell us about this one. There is a uh, French inspector kind of a semi-famous detective um Poirot-ish. yeah and he he goes to the small village where he has a little bit of infamy and people know his name and that sort of thing and he enjoys his little bit of celebrity as he kind of like relaxes in this town and he meets this woman who's always sort of idolized him and she's engaged to get married but they have this uh love affair and then one day one day for about 45 minutes of this movie, it's very bucolic and very French countryside and ooh-la-la and wee-wee. Yeah. And Here's a delightful little country festival and yes. some cheese and wine. And, and, and just as that begins to get extremely taxing, um, <laughs> that woman and her, her fiancé turn up dead. Yes. And thus begins, um, like, the real mystery of the film, which uh, is where I'll stop because it is it – is, one as well that is worth seeking out, uh, full of surprises and, and interesting and unusual. And again, one that I'm surprised hasn't been remade to death. Um, this is one that like, it's kind of a, like in the tradition of Agatha Christie type films, it's kind of almost a meta film in that sense. Not quite, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's, it's resolution is very sort of like, this is somebody who spent a while thinking about what hadn't been done yet. <laughs> and, I found it entirely implausible, at least in terms of the way the film detailed it. I'm like, really, movie? I don't know. I, that was my biggest problem with this. I was like, I like what you're trying to do. I just don't think you did it very well. Yeah. Because um, by the end, I was like, all right. I agree why this didn't get hasn't gotten remade because it seems like there is a better movie in this idea than this movie, actually. That is. may be true. That may be true. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's considered a cult classic and you can see why, cause if you like, you, you really have no idea that this is where this film is going to go. It's really wacky, especially for this time period to have mm-hmm. this sort of thing happen. You're like, wait, what? Yeah. Maybe that was part of it. I was just like, even today, I'm like, seriously? <laughs> It feels like a movie David Fincher would have remade early in his oh, yeah. career or, or Alan Parker, perhaps. But, um. If you like So Dark the Night, this is another Arrow release, which means it's got that awesome uh, cover and uh, included booklet, along with a few extra bonus features. There's a commentary by Glenn Kenny and Farron Smith name. There's A Dark Place, Joseph H. Lewis, 20 Minutes, which is an appreciation of him uh, by Imogen Sarah Smith, who wrote a book uh, specifically about uh, the director and his films, uh, which is, you know, basically just... One featurette split into two with the other one that's on. So uh, my name is Julia Ross. You're like, okay. So they were like, we had two different things. They're both about 20 minutes. Let's just put one on each because I don't know. It's not like the world is lousy yeah. with with featurettes about Joseph H. Ross. If you can only see one, I would say my name is Julia Ross is probably – it's certainly more – it would be one that I would watch again. And I don't know that I would watch – What's the second one? So dark the night is that mm-hmm. the name of the other one? Yeah, I don't know that I would necessarily watch So Dark the Night over and over again, but I could see myself revisiting My Name Is Julia Ross every five, ten years. Yeah, it it, it moves pretty quickly, and God, she's just a, such a likable, spunky heroine in it. Really, you're like, yeah. oh, I just like watching what you do, and uh, the, the guy in here should be more fun. 
And he spends a lot of times like, hey, hey, I feel like he's looking to the screen going, hey, I know I'm the world's greatest detective, but I'm on fucking vacation. Leave me alone. <laughs> uh, you're like, oh, okay. Sorry to bother you, sir. Just go back to what you were doing. I guess I'll just sit here and watch the movie. It had a little too much. Uh, again, it's very front-loaded with a lot of uh, French pleasantry that uh, I, I began to wear out its welcome as far as I, as far as I was concerned. Because there was a point. I actually got the movie spoiled for me. I, I still ended up really liking it, but I got it spoiled for me because I was like 45 minutes into it, and I'm like, what the hell is this movie about? And I looked at something that gave the plot, but it was one of those where it gave the plot backwards, where it was like they told you the spoiler up front and then told you the rest of the synopsis. And I was wow. like, well, screw me then, because I just ruined it for myself. But I was like, is this going anywhere? Because, yeah, for 40 minutes, it's just like, I am enjoying my time here at your villa. Would and you like, like some more like, cheese? Okay, oh, yeah. yes, please. I will take seconds of cheese. <laughs> and look at all the lovely ladies. I'm not, that's not even, that's Italian. I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, anyway, the next Arrow film we have is a 1955 drama called The Prisoner. This has nothing to do with the very popular television series or its movie or its remake. Um, this is a completely separate thing. Based on a play starring Alec Guinness, which alone was like, oh, cool, I'll watch almost anything with Alec Guinness. He's one of the greatest actors pretty much ever. And this was not for me. <laughs> Holy cow. Uh, this is a – it's a unknown East European country where World War II has wrapped up, but now a new tyranny of communism has replaced it. Uh, Alec Guinness plays a cardinal who right off the beginning – right off the bat, he's doing mass and he's told – they're here to arrest you and comes in. He's, he's just kind of like, seriously, seriously, what do you got? I mean, I'm a cardinal. And they're like, well, uh, his, in, his uh, interrogator played by Jack Hawkins is basically saying, there's no way you're going to be able to torture this guy to get a confession for him being anti-communist. But I feel like I can psychologically manipulate him into that point, which I'd say ultimately he does, but in a, I'm not sure how we got there. I'm watching it. I'm just like, it tries to be very florid and very sort of like, like the guy who's writing this feels like, I'm like the new Shakespeare. And I'm like, no, you're not. This is just, I don't even know what these characters are. I kept having to back it up and look at the subtitles and go, wait, what is he even saying right now? What are you getting at? It's trying to be very philosophical yeah. and like about like, Oh, by nature of being human, you sin the, the sin of pride and stuff that has absolutely no cognitive effect on me no, whatsoever. It's very lofty, it's very pious, and it's very boring. It's very boring. <laughs> it's two men in a room for the bulk of it. And like I said, maybe it would mean something more to someone who considered themselves very religious. But to me, uh, and the movie's not very religious per yeah. se. It's just discussing things from a sort of, like, from the angle of the theosophy. Well, even even post-release, the movie was apparently confusing to people because it was banned in places for being pro-communist, uh -huh. and it was also banned in places for being anti-communist. So whatever they were trying to get across wasn't made very clear. I don't feel like they accomplished their goal. <laughs> exactly. I mean, Guinness is... Giving a good performance, but like I said, I find the the dialogue stilted and impenetrable. Yeah, I, I I just did not care for this at all. It was the toughest. It was the toughest thing to pay attention to uh, in this in this 
in this stack of films that we're talking about today, yeah. it was the toughest to pay attention to. Great cover, though, that Arrow put together for this. I love the cover. Uh, like uh, The other two we talked about were just pretty much a photo from the the, the uh, film attached to, to it, which is odd for an Arrow release. But this one actually has this neat drawing of, like, Alec Guinness with like a hand above his head, like pulling webs and like strings out of his head. I was like, Oh, that's really super cool. It's too bad. The movie is not <laughs> another thing where I've seen this type of story before done. So, so, so much better. Yeah. You know, um, I just, I wish I had more to say about it, except I can't because I just had a hard time even keeping my eyes open. Uh, if this is your type of, if you like this movie, you've seen it before, which is unlikely, but <laughs> maybe it was on your radar and you're looking forward to proving me wrong. The arrow offers a 23 and a half minute interrogating Guinness, which is obviously kind of a look on at the, at the film and Alec Guinness's performance specifically. And a, uh, 50, there's 15 minutes of selected scenes commentary. I mean, not even, even arrow couldn't figure out a lot of stuff to add. This movie is pretty goddamn obscure too. So all but, forgotten i yeah. would argue which is weird for an alec guinness film just go see kind hearts and coronets if you're looking for an old guinness film it's much much better uh and then we have moving to the far east a film i've been trying to i've been wanting to see something like this for a long time i'm always saying what do i want to see badass martial arts guys do now oh i know i want to see them fight zombies <laughs> and sure enough we have rampant which not only that this is south korean period piece like so kind of a wushu-ish type movie where everybody can jump really far and like basic essentially has magic powers of some sort of weapon-based powers but with these dudes fighting sort of world war z type zombies like super fast moving when they want to be but also really stupid um and that sounds great and when it's people versus zombies it's great it's just when they're just talking about stuff and trying to have a background plot. There's a lot, is yeah. A it's set against the backdrop of a lot of politics, similar to the politics that we saw in uh, what was the name of the the Korean uh, adventure historical adventure film the last that time we watched? Yeah, I'm blanking on the name, but but I like that one a lot better though. Yeah, this this I felt was like about it. It runs, I think, right at or right over two hours. Ran- yeah, it's 121 minutes. Yeah, yeah and I felt like a good 20 to 30 minutes should have been cut and it would have been a fantastic movie. Agreed. It's super bloated. It's very entertaining when it, when it's on, it's, it's on, but it's full of fat. It's a very bloated movie. There's, it, it is not efficient for your, I mean, you, you, as a film goer, I think you have an intrinsic knowledge of zombie cliches uh, and the movie kind of introduces those to you through the characters' eyes who the characters aren't familiar with zombie cliches. And so to them, each new discovery about zombies is uh, given a weight and an importance that the audience doesn't necessarily need because we, we know, like we get it. Yeah. We, we, we know what's going on. We've lot. seen the score. Yeah. <laughs> and we know, we know what zombies are. Um, and I felt like there was a little bit too much handholding with that. And again, a little bit too much focus on the political background that ultimately I'm, I wouldn't say it doesn't matter because it, it sort of provides the backdrop of the plot, but at some point it doesn't matter more than the zombie stuff. Yeah, you're like so, like 
this feels like people, the, the director thought people were equally interested in the yeah. political intrigue. And trust me, no one could possibly <laughs> have been as interested in that as you're in the zombies, which are generally good makeup, kind of gory, cool action sequences, yeah. you know, like guys swinging around big pole axes and chopping zombies heads off. I mean, come on. That's, no, it, that's a cool thing to it watch. Is, and it is, and it is cool. And, and I think my only thing about it being shorter is I just wish it, I just wish it were. I, that's my deal. Is that when I was watching it, I was like, "Okay, like I get it. How much more is left? Oh, forty minutes. All right." Yeah, like, I know. <laughs> going like, I'm about this close to watching this at one and a half speed, just <laughs> through the political parts, just yeah. to just to get through them to get to the next zombie scene. Um, and it's not to say there's a lack of zombie stuff. It's just that this is two hours, and half of it is people talking about political shit you couldn't possibly care about. Yeah. <laughs> um, there is a few extras on here. They divide it up into like, uh, like three different things that are really each are about a minute and a half to less than a minute long. Eat a little EPK bit. So not a lot of bonus stuff here, but I do say like, especially if you're somebody who's kind of like, more so if you're like, I want to see every zombie movie that's worth saying, I go, this is a movie that is worth seeing. Yeah. Um, but if you're one of those people who are like, I'm really into wushu and South Korean cinema, I'm not sure this is as much going to be your, your cup of tea. I can see that. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to our next one, which is The Possession of Hannah Grace. Despite sending this one, they only sent me the DVD of this. Apparently, there was a Blu-ray release There is a Blu-ray. Well. Yeah. Um, but this was a movie that got a wide theatrical release. It just disappeared super fast because um, it was marketed extremely poorly. And critics, wow, they hated this fucking thing. Like, so much so that I was watching it going, look, I get it. It's nothing we haven't seen before. But why do you guys hate it with such a passion? I thought it was fine. It was better than I thought it would be. I thought it was going to be like Haunting of Molly Hartley or any of those other movies that are always like the blank of blankety blank. Yeah. And it I, it has an unfortunate title. I almost wish it was titled anything else. And I literally just saw Autopsy of Jane Doe which is like much, two much, months before. Which is like, much, much better. Yeah. And, the same and they're very, very similar movies. And there's actually another one that's a... Um, God, what's the name of it? It's a there's a cop and they're overnight, and the other police the other policemen aren't there. Yeah, and I've seen. I actually kind of like that one. Yeah, as well. and yeah. Sh- and so you have this woman who's like working by herself in in that one. It's a police station, and a, and you know she's seeing weird things, and weird things are happening in the morgue. This movie is of that type, which was completely different than what I thought it was going to be. Mm. I thought it was going to be like a very generic possession movie. It's not. It's a complete. It's a. It's a generic. Uh, hey, I have to work the night shift in a place that's super creepy movie. Yeah, I, um, which was which. There are far fewer of those than there are generic possession movies. True. I, I don't think that we're at the point where like this is a trope that's run itself no. into the ground yet, but it has been common lately. Yeah, uh, as a thing. Um, I did like that this starts with something that those don't with the seeing you know the actual possession of said person and. Um, her basically the she's so whatever's inside her is so powerful it just murders the shit out of the priest that's trying to exercise her and then the her dad the dad of the girl is like well we gave it a best shot and murders her with a pillow and you're like I have admittedly never seen that in an exorcism movie yeah. so I'm like where are you going movie and like uh, the autopsy of Jane Doe this is a already dead person that was doing evil things, but evil cannot die. And so naturally it's going to be 
one little movement at a time. Super creepy as new cop or ex-cop who now is working the graveyard shift in a morgue on the first day. Shay Mitchell is doing her best not to be have her nerves completely wrecked in a not pleasant situation to begin with, especially when she's been warned ahead of time. People don't last very long in this job. After a while, they tend to crack under like just how freaky it is to be doing this job and all alone in a morgue, but I'm sure you'll be fine. And she wants to prove that she will be too. And, and she is not because the body of said possessed person shows up weeks after the thing that happened before. So you're like the, 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 you know, the, her, her, uh, exorcism. So you're like, well, where's this body been this whole time? And she of course is in bad shape. Her body's like, her neck is like cut to the point where it's all, her head is almost falling off her body. She's got big slices across her abdomen. Um, she looks fucked up. She is really, really, really creepy. Uh, the, the actress, I'm, what is her name? I'm surprised it's not right here. Oh yeah, uh, Kirby Johnson is a uh, dancer and contortionist, and okay. the movie takes full advantage of her ability to get her body and to knock her her bones out of joint and to get into some really strange positions. But strange stuff starts happening, and my biggest problem here is that it, in some ways, it's just this boring slasher. Where it's like, oh, any character who's in this movie who's not the main character only serves the purpose of showing up long enough so that we can see the reanimated Hannah Gray show up and kill them. Yeah. Uh, uh, yawn? <laughs> like, the, the actual... If it wasn't for that, I would actually like this movie a lot more than I do. There was something about it I just didn't find it scary. Um, it never got my... It never... It never... Uh had me. It never quite got me to a place of like, you know, even being remotely on the edge of my seat. But it was the kind of movie that, you know, occasionally you'll see something and even if you don't like it, if somebody else were to tell you like, oh, I saw this cool little horror movie the other day. It was called The Possession of Hannah Grace. And I'd seen it and didn't like it. I would still be like, yeah, it was all right. Yeah. You know, I may not even express, no, I didn't like it at all. Because I can't say I didn't like it at all. But you know, it, it <laughs> it's one of those movies that had a lot of potential with certain parts of its building blocks, yeah. But chose to just go the really boring, yeah. generic. Something route. something about it never quite uh, never quite comes together for it to be something really, really good. Um, but it's fine for what it is, yeah. And and again, different than what I expected, which was nice. I always like it when a movie surprises me, and this wasn't what I thought it would be. I, again, how how successful it is is up to you, but uh, but it definitely wasn't what I thought it would be. Much stronger recommendation if you're looking for something like this that with the Autopsy of Jane Doe, which I genuinely think is a, a pretty great little horror film. Yeah, um, which is largely the same plot. It's this is it's fine. It's just. Not as good as that. There's a few, there's three uh, small featurettes on here that are run at about six minutes apiece. Uh, and then there is one deleted scene, um, that I actually thought was kind of interesting, but I don't know. I mean, I, this isn't a movie I'll return to, but it's not a movie that I'm mad that I saw, like so many other critics seem to insinuate, like, oh God, <laughs> fuck this movie. It's like it literally, it raped my mother and killed my father. I hate this movie. No, it's, it's, uh, it's not any worse than like the worst, like Blumhouse movies or, yeah. It's fine. Yeah. I, I even like it better than some of the worst Blumhouse <laughs> films. Yeah. There's some really bad ones out there. Uh, I'm looking at you first, Ouija. Just saying. 
Was that Blumhouse? I don't even know. I think I it was. Uh, our next movie is another horror movie. This one from Germany. I think Germany. Maybe it's from Norway. I'm not sure. Uh, House. Uh, the House. Sorry, there's a lot of movies already called House. This, a lot of horror movies called House. This one adds a the, so it's not confusing. <laughs> it's two German soldiers have taken a Norwegian soldier as their prisoner, and it's in the middle of the winter during World War II. They're up in the mountains. They're starting to think, we're kind of fucked here, right? We got this guy. Why don't we just kill him? He's slowing us down. Uh, the commandant is like, no, 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 we, we don't do that. And they find this house out in the middle of nowhere and like, we're saved, but it is a house of evil. They go in and like, there's food cooking on the stove and candles are freshly lit and the radio is on. They're like, somebody has got to be here. No one is there. Well, the place is crazy haunted and it's not entirely clear what exactly is going on with that. I mean, as the movie goes on, it starts to get into time loops and a lot of stuff that reminded, felt like it was kind of loosely borrowed from Nacho Vigalando's time crimes, you know, with the sort of like people flashing onto them being where they already were before. And I admit at the end, I was not entirely clear what was exactly supposed to be the thing making this house do whatever it was doing. Oh, I, I took it as, I, I took it very much in the vein of, um, one of those movies where there were, where, it's, and again, it's ambiguous, so it's not a spoiler. I think it's open to interpretation, but to me, it was like, you're already damned, like one of those kind of things where it's like, oh, they, they're, this is their, this is what they're now trapped in. Like, this is their eternal punishment is sort of like this cycle of being in this place. And at some point, they had actually, like, died, and this is sort of like their hell. I mean, possibly, but the movie certainly doesn't overtly tell you no. that either. Um, it is, this is art exploitation films, which tend to be kind of a mixed bag. Every once in a while, they come out with something that's like, yes, this is a new classic. And this isn't, but it is definitely really interesting what's going on. Here. It's like uh, festival horror, if that's such a term. <laughs> I, I, I know exactly what you mean. And this was this is film festival horror. Um, there are certain movies that you catch at a film festival, and a lot of them are not from America. And you'll watch it, and then they'll disappear forever, and you'll never see them again and forget the name of it. And be sitting around with friends one day and be like, what was the name of that thing that we saw at that one film festival? It was like these Nazis, and they had like the Norwegian guy, and they were trapped in the house. Uh <laughs> It was the house. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a film fest horror. And it's not, again, just like uh, The Possession of Hannah Grace. It, the ingredients never really add up to it being scary. It And, and I felt like it works. It, I felt like it wanted to be. It really felt like they were trying to build some kind of atmosphere. Um, and, and, yeah, it was no uh, – it, it never built that for me. Um I, I do think that it is, um, you know, if, if it sounds interesting to you, if you have a taste for, um, for film fest horror, I'm trying to avoid using the word like, I apparently there's a big controversy right now about using the word elevated horror because somebody referred to us as elevated horror oh. and people were like, what do you mean elevated horror? I like mean, all horror is the same. Because, this is, this like, because no. we're in that weird discussion where a bunch of people decided that if a horror movie is really good, it's therefore by definition, not a horror movie, which is just a way of saying yeah. I'm too good to like a horror movie and I like this. So therefore it can't be a horror movie and you're a snob yeah. because there's lots of great horror movies. Jordan Peele himself tweeted us as a horror movie. Yes. End of story. Yes. There's some, but the, the, I get it to some degree because you have to, there are people who have seen like 
there are people who think horror and they think like, oh, Friday the 13th. And so when you tell them something's a horror movie, they're like, I'm not interested. And it's yeah. like, no, you have to, you have to. You have to redefine it. So is Jaws. So is Rosemary's Baby. And so is, I'm sorry, even Jonathan Dem said as much. Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's lots of great, great horror out there. And the unfortunate thing about, like, that having that bad trope to it is that so many really genuinely great movies got sidelined because of this sort of, oh, we're not supposed to like those things. Like, yeah. The Thing, when it came out, mm-hmm. bombed. One, yeah. of the, one of the greatest movies of all time. Bombed. But then again, so did Blade Runner, which came out the same weekend. Yeah, I think the house. <laughs> I think the house is uh, like Possession of Hannah Grace is fine. It's fine. I think it's it's definitely considerably more innovative and, and like trying reaching for more than Hannah Grace is. Yeah, I do think its ambitions are loftier. Yeah, and who doesn't want to see? It's another chapter in the endless series of horror movies that are Nazis versus. Now we can add ghosts to yeah. our list. Nazis versus ghosts. We need Nazis versus mummies, young festival filmmakers. We haven't seen that yet. So that I'm aware of. Maybe I just wasn't at that festival. I don't know. Um, Next up is another uh, really bizarre little kind of horror film called She-Wolf. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, this kind of – so this is uh, an Argentinian film Mm -hmm. about this – Woman who appears to men as kind of what they want to see. See, it's one character played by three different actresses, depending on which men she's dealing with in whatever scene she's in. And most of it has to do with her killing, killing the men when issues of consent come into play. Um, when someone says no to sex, even if they're halfway through the sex act, if the consent isn't there, then she's going to kill you. Um, and it's the box tries to define it way more literally like, Oh, it's about a serial killer and somebody's on her trail. And I'm like, Meh. it felt, it felt more metaphorical to me. And it felt very much to me. It felt very much like an Abel Ferrara movie. It oh, felt, completely. It felt like, or even 45 or even like seventies Euro sleaze. Yeah. You know, like, it, like the, uh, God, what's the name of the director who, they, they put out a lot of his stuff recently. We did a bunch of vampire movies and stuff where it's like all this sort of vaguely sensual. Very oh, Gene Rollin? Yeah, Gene, Gene Rollin. Yeah. It's, it has a somewhat of that sort of feeling to it, but definitely more of a – it's not as ambient as those. Mm-hmm. This feels like it wants to be more dynamic. It has sort of a music oh, video element yeah, and it's to a very, it. Yeah, it's explicitly sexual. Like, oh, it's yeah. graphically sexual. And uh, – but I kind of, I kind of dug it. It also reminded me a little bit of Scarlet Diva, which you and I watched recently. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I sort of, I could, I got it. Like I kind of dug it in that way, where it's like, I see what you're going for. Like, and I, I can appreciate this. Um, I wouldn't recommend it to to everyone. I think your tastes have to lean towards more DIY filmmaking. I mean, it's very, very low budget. It, it, it reminds me of yeah, that sort of like. The sort of like scrappy made in New York kind of indie films where, you know, somebody's almost shooting it like guerrilla style. Yeah. Um, it kind of has those vibes to it, but, uh, but I kind of dug it, um, it's, in a way. Like, it, it, yeah, it's, in a it was way. Fine. It's, I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. Uh, there's, it's going to be very confusing. It's not supposed to ever, I don't think you're ever supposed to completely understand what's happening. As you're right, this is a film that's treading in metaphor, not in literalism. Yeah. But it's not – it's largely linear. 
there's points where you're said like, wait, am I wrong or is these are these the different person or are they same people? I mean, once you get the gimmick, I, I wish the box had made it clear because it would have helped to be told from the get go. This is one person. Three different actress, actresses play them. Uh, it's not important. Just watch the movie. Yeah. <laughs> There's even sequences where all three actors, actresses are in the same scene together, mm. which are oddly very satisfying when it happens. You're like, it's almost like a release when they're, they're all three are together and interacting with each other. Uh, there's no werewolves here, despite the title might make you think otherwise. Uh, yeah. Very disappointing because I'm always looking for the next great werewolf film because there's not very many of them. <laughs> there's only a few really I can form, firmly recommend werewolf movies out there. And uh, this is not one that's going to be going on that no, list. No, I, I recommend it if you like Abel Ferrara, if you, especially if you like Miss 45. It's definitely in line with that type of movie. Yeah, I agree. Uh, next one I do thoroughly recommend, which is The Standoff at Sparrow Creek. I actually originally saw this – God, was it Fantastic Fest or South by? I can't even remember anymore. But at a festival and really enjoyed it there. Um, now it is out on Blu-ray. Uh, James Badge Dale, who's quickly rising as sort of like a, a star that is someone who can carry a movie on their own, I feel like, plays – uh, a former police officer who now is in a private militia, you know, one of those potentially scary little private militias, mm-hmm. uh, that group of older guys who probably have a certain degree of racism between them uh, that have a private stockpile of guns and ammunition waiting for the government to come and try to take it from them. And the deal is there was a mass shooting at a police funeral. He it's something is made clear to them where it sounds like, it's made to look like maybe it was their militia who did this, but none of them claim any awareness of it. They're like, I didn't have anything to do with this. What, what's going on? Uh, and he kind of acts as like an investigator character, like interrogating all the other people and trying to uncover what's really going on here. And this is a very twisty, almost weirdly sort of like a redneck Agatha Christie story, if you will, that I think was handled incredibly well by director uh, Henry Dunham and uh, director-writer Henry Dunham, who made it quite the gripping and and really visually interesting film. But, John, what do you think? <laughs> I agree with all that. Uh, yeah, it's, it's Shades of Reservoir Dogs, sort of this, like, one person among us is uh, not telling the truth kind of movie. Um, James Badge Dale also is one of those actors that to me, I don't think I recognize him from movie to movie. You're always, he's a, that guy. Yeah. Actor. Um, he's slowly becoming in more and more prominent roles. But to me, like he's not even a, that guy. Cause I forget, I forget who he is. So like, it'll be one of those things where it's like, I'll look up who the lead is and be like, Oh, he was, it's the guy from Iron Man three. <laughs> this is typically what I go back to. Oh, that's the guy from Iron Man three, but I always have to look him up. Cause I, I find, I find something about him like sort of unrecognizable role to role. Um, he was in The Departed as well. Yeah. And 24. Yeah. I, I, just, <laughs> I don't know uh, if that helps anyone at all. Just saying, uh, he uh, was. And World I, War Z yeah. and The Lone Ranger. He's in a lot of shit. You're just like, oh, yeah, it's that guy. Hold the dark. <laughs> or as we called it, Hodar. Yeah. <laughs> this has a good... Um, there's an ambiance to this movie that there's like a nice sort of low key sinister vibe to the whole thing. Um, it, it feels kind of from go. There's something, there's something interesting about the tone of the film. It feels like it's kind of quiet and it's like quietly dangerous, which is 
a nice vibe. Yeah. Like, all these people feel like dangerous people. It's a, it's a pot boiler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I kind of dug the general vibe of it in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and it's a cast of people that almost everyone in here, I'm like, where have I seen them before? But they're all like future that guys, perhaps. Yeah. Because <laughs> they're not quite in enough stuff to be that guys. You're like, I know I saw them somewhere, but they're all strong in their parts and have very clearly delineated personalities. And you're, you yourself watching it as with any good whodunit mystery, you keep changing your mind about who you think the person is who, who's involved. If anyone even is, you know, it's one of those, a movie makes you think even sometimes, well, maybe what if none of them are, did it? I know? think as well, seeing the credits on the front, um, it being from the producer of Bone Tomahawk, uh, and knowing the politics of uh, is his name S. Craig Zaylor, the guy yeah. who did Bone Tomahawk. He's very he's very right wing politically, and I think going into this, going like, I don't know, watching a movie about a militia from a outspoken right wing filmmaker, like I don't know if I, I don't know what I'm about to get into, right. But I didn't find it necessarily like I didn't find it overtly political as no. much as it was just kind of uh, a setting for which to tell the story that they wanted to tell. Maybe there's a subtext there that I just wasn't catching on to, and I myself thought about that, going like, I wonder if I'm missing something that is sort of like pro little heavily armed militias. But it it just is the it's an odd setting. That's all. Yeah. It's a setting that seems kind of foreign. There's only uh, one extra here. It's ten minutes and forty five seconds of the making of Standoff Sparrow Creek. That's about it. Uh, I would have actually appreciated more uh, for this, but um, it's weirdly the press release said there was a photo gallery, but that's not even on the disc. Hmm. Very, very strange. Well, taking a turn away from the super dark, violent stuff, which is admittedly the bulk of what we end up covering on the show into comedy, uh, where we have a whole series of them here, we're going all the way back to 1981 for that one John Belushi comedy I always meant to get around to seeing, but never did until now, which is Neighbors. This is being put out by Mill Creek in their collection of VHS retro covers, which look like a videotape with the tape sliding out of it on the cover, which is a, a cool little gimmick. And they've actually done some stuff. I mean, their their whole collection is pretty much movies like Neighbors. They're like, oh yeah, I remember this movie. Yeah. I never saw it, but I kind I remember seeing it on the shelf. Those type of movies. And the reason I never got around to this, despite John Belushi obviously being a comedy legend, is because it got really mixed reviews when it came out. I mean, it was kind of a bomb. And even though it's John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd in the two lead roles, you're like, how is that not, in 1981, a massive comedy hit? And I think arguably the reason is, as a lot of critics pointed out, and it still is true, why didn't they switch characters. Ah, but they did switch characters. <laughs> I mean, but you know what I mean though. Like they were they were cast they were cast as the opposite roles of what they are in the film and the production had started and they decided amongst themselves to swap. It seems like a bad call. And then you had Belushi as the straight man and Aykroyd as the weirdo. Well, why don't you describe the plot of this one? It is about a schlubby middle-class American who has two a kind of like freewheeling, uh, conniving, almost swinger type weirdos that move into the house next door. It all pretty, it's supposed to take place over one night. Um, it is, uh, it's one of those like, oh, my whole, I'm, I, my whole life has been disrupted by this person kind of movies. 
Um, it is not successful as a comedy. No. Um, I can, I certainly can understand why it has a cult following because it does have a lot of weirdness. It's never not once has, uh, does it have a toe in anything that's grounded or believable. And yeah. I feel like the movie really needs that. This, it may have the worst score I've, oh my I've God. heard for a comedy, like slide it's, whistle. It's so bad. Bill Conti uses slide whistles. It's so bad you can't believe it. Yeah. You're, you're like, it's scored as if it is an actual cartoon. Like, yes. like, and it's just not, it's not quite, Frantic it, enough to be a cartoon, but the but the music wants it to have that energy. I also think Belushi's miscast from an age standpoint because he's supposed to have like a twenty something year old daughter. Yeah, and it's it's obvious that he's not old enough to have a twenty something year old daughter, <laughs> right? Uh, or at least very unlikely, anyway. Uh, like, and he's like you said, he's a schlub. His whole his wife and his daughter don't respect him at all. Um, he's but he seems to be happy in his rut in his way. You know, or at least have accepted this is what life is. Yeah. And the movie wants it, you to get to this trans- transfer point where his annoyance at these way over the top cartoonish neighbors turns into a sort of strange admiration for their lifestyle that the movie never sells you on. It happens so instantly in the film that you're like, wait, what? <laughs> well, apparently in the book, he loses, and, and the movie has a happier ending, but in the book, he apparently loses everything and is left by himself. Mm-hmm. Like, everybody's gone, and then it's just like him. The like, book is considered to be quite good. Yeah. From all reports, the book is really good, and no, nowhere near as cartoonish as the movie yeah. tries to be. I but, did laugh once. I laughed when Aykroyd... Uh, kicks Belushi in the balls with his bad knee and then they both fall down in pain. Yeah. That was the funniest part of the whole movie to me. But uh and and I know it's like a nut shot, so like how how low are my comedy tastes that the nut shot made me laugh. <laughs> but I'd never seen anybody like kick somebody with a bad leg and them also like fall down in pain. So that was the that got the one single like chuckle from me. And the rest of it I found either frustrating because people were behaving in ways that no human being would ever behave on the face of the planet. Yeah. Not even in cartoons. Yeah, just like <laughs> like behaviorally stuff where it's like why how is that acceptable? Why would you do that? Like the part where they there's a kind of an early scene where they accuse John Belushi's character of uh, having sex with Kathy Moriarty, who plays Dan Aykroyd's wife, and they accuse him of doing this over dinner, that he porked her, <laughs> and it causes a big kerfluffle, and they go home angry, and then Belushi's left there to try to defend, uh, no, I didn't, I promise, I didn't pork her, uh, to his wife, and then later that the couple come back over, and they're like, oh, we were just kidding, and the wife is like, ah, ha, 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 yeah. y'all are so funny with your funny jokes, and I'm just like, a lot no of, human being behaves this way. There's a like, lot of, like, the movie wants you to believe that, like, he's the only one who can see how horrible these people are, and the wife is just like, I, what is wrong with you? They're perfectly fine. You're like, how could you possibly think they're perfectly fine based on you, what you've been witness to? This is a good example of how bad the score is. Anytime the wife mentions anything having to do with Native Americans, the score goes, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. dun I was like, oh, God. It's, you can't, you're not going to be able to miss that aspect. Even if, if everything else in this movie had worked, the score would still kill it. Dead in the water. Yeah, lots of theremin, lots of slide whistles. Oh, my God. What were uh, they thinking? Yeah. No. Um, I do think I want to argue that to some extent, even as just a historical relic of John Belushi's work, it's worth seeing. He's never been in another role like this. 
I've never seen another movie like this. Uh, there's nothing to really compare it to on the whole, specifically. I mean, we've certainly seen sort of like straight laced character annoyed by like wildlife character, but this is just so absurd and over the top and misguided <laughs> that it kind of bears watching for yourself. And I think also, you know, a lot of times I wouldn't tell somebody to read into the making of it, but this is one where I would say read into the making of it. If you haven't read Wired, read Wired and then watch this. Or just even go on the Wikipedia page and read about the production. Like, uh, it was, it was apparently a nightmare for all parties involved. The Belushi and Aykroyd didn't think that the director, which was John Avildsen, who did Rocky, they didn't think that he knew how to direct comedy. So they were constantly fighting with him. So then when it's not funny, I'm curious as to how much of that was their pull away from him. How much of it not being funny was him. Um, and the, the screenwriter was Larry Gebhardt, Gebhardt, who wrote MASH. Right. Uh, and he wanted to take his name off of it, but couldn't because it was so different from what he wanted the movie version of the book to be. I mean, it was apparently. By the uh, way, not John Conti, Bill Conti, who, like, you'd think he was just some schlub. The dude wrote the score to Rocky. Yeah. And the right stuff. Yeah. He's won Academy Awards. Question mark? <laughs> oh, I was saying Tom Conti, wasn't I? Oh, yeah. yeah. Bill, Tom Scott was originally doing the Bill score, Conti. and then Bill Conti ended up. Yeah. Like I said, seems like a guy who would do a great job. Well, but. yeah. And, uh, Belushi had gone over everybody's head and gotten a punk band at the time to do the whole score as punk Fear. music. Yeah. And they went back and, uh, <laughs> and replaced all that. Which uh, apparently was recorded and exists, but like... It's lost. Yeah. No one can find it. And I, being a fan of the band Fear, that makes me very sad. Uh. <laughs> I would love to hear what that original score would have sounded like. Uh, but the lead singer of Fear, Lee Ving, who was an actor in his own right, used to come into a restaurant I worked at in Austin all the time because his best friend growing up was like the brother of the oh, owner cool. who worked there. But it was when he was in his cowboy phase. He was in his Tom Mix cowboy phase. So like this is the guy who was like one of the most riot-starting punk rockers of all time. And then suddenly was wearing like white and silver and turquoise cowboy outfits and talking with an affected accent. And I was like, you can't possibly be leaving, but sweet guy. There's these movies that when Dan Aykroyd has a lot of creative control are really weird and miss the mark in regards to comedy, like Dr. Detroit, yeah. neighbors, Coneheads, um, uh, nothing but trouble. Yeah. And it's almost like when he, when he has some create real creative influence over a movie without any, uh, guidance, it, it almost always, cause there's something also tonally kind of the same about those movies as well. Like they kind of fail in the same ways, which is they're sort of abrasive. Yeah. Um, and, and more annoying than they are funny. Uh, and I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is about Aykroyd's sensibilities as a comedic actor. Because I, I always like him when he shows up in other things or when he does sketch comedy. But there's something about these movies where he has a little more control, where it's just like they, they're they're a bridge too far. They're, they're aggravating they're too much. They're kind aggravating, of aggravating to watch. Yeah. Uh, well, our next film was from being released by Kino Lober, Lovers and Other Strangers. This came out in 1970, where it was nominated for three Oscars. Uh, it won for Best Original Song, which admittedly is a catchy little number. It's a famous song, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and this is one of those ensemble romantic comedies thing, but with like, it's 1970, so double underlined sex. Yeah. Under it as well, uh, which is still kind of a sexy little movie in its own way. You can see why this is not a film that, on the whole, has stood the test of time. Is something people still keep coming back. Oh to no, it's a snapshot about. of a particular. It's a snapshot of 1970. Like it's the free love movement, kind of crossing paths with like the nuclear family and how 
how a family sort of navigates love and marriage in that nexus of 60s free love. And the story centers around Michael Brandon as Mike and a very young Bonnie Bedelia. That's uh, John McClane's wife. Yes. uh, As Susan, who are going to get married. Uh, He is very having very cold feet about it. And she's literally just kind of laughing off his cold feet in the beginning scene. Um but they've been living together for a while, which makes them both kind of uncomfortable with dealing with their parents to some level. Uh, her parents, uh, Hal and Bernice, uh, uh, are having their own issues where he's been having an extramarital affair with his sister. Um, and there's a bunch of other side characters throughout this. The whole thing at about the halfway point is the wedding, and it's the wedding for the rest of the thing and all of these little stories of various people's sort of romances and and ending of romances happening are are playing out and some of these stories are better and funnier and more interesting than others um there's a lot of very familiar faces Diane Keaton in one of her first major theat- theatrical roles plays a small role uh in in here and you're just like oh my god you really were once that young and mm-hmm. just God, she was such a knockout back in the seventies. Like, oh, yeah. you see why people were like, "Who is that?" Jerry Stiller has a small role in here as well. Uh, I could not find him, but apparently, you can see Sylvester Stallone as one of the groomsmen. And oh, really? It was one of his first like role, like on, <laughs> on camera roles he ever got. Um, you know, this is like you said, it's a snapshot of a time, but is not without its merits. I can say I genuinely enjoyed watching this. This feels like it was a bigger influence on television to follow. It shows like the love boat and stuff than it was on any future films to come. But it is like, I don't know. It made me laugh several times during it. It was very, I, I quite enjoyed it. It I, about a little ways into it. I think it was, I can tell you specifically when it was, it was the way that the patterns of words were repeated in the first scene with B. Arthur. Yeah, that's right, B. Arthur. That I was like, this has got to be based on a play. And I looked it up, and sure enough, it's based on a play, based on a play by Joseph Bologna, the character actor, uh, the guy who played the mad scientist in Transylvania 65000. That's who I always go back to. But yeah, Joseph Bologna, pretty famous character actor. uh, it was also terrible Turpin on the Superman animated series. Um, oh my God. You really uh, pulled out the Joseph Bologna yeah. backstory. Well, I, cause I was floored. I was like, I had no idea that he was a writer and him and his wife wrote this and they based it on their own experiences that she was Jewish and he was Italian and it was sort of loosely based on their families and, and their marriage. Um, and you can tell it's based on a play. There's not, everything is driven by conversation, but all of the conversations are interesting. And that, to me, you know, that kept the movie moving because it is all, it is literally all talking and it is very stagey. It's pretty much, they'll put two characters in a room and then those characters will converse and then you'll move on to another two characters and those characters will converse. And there's very few scenes that have more than two characters. There's very few locations that aren't just a room. Um, but that all the dialogue was interesting and that and that kept it moving and and I really liked it again it it is a snapshot of a time but it's an enjoyable movie there was one scene that actually kind of had me in stitches early on where uh mike is talking to his parents uh b arthur richard castellano that is very much 
a very Woody Allen-ish type Jewish humor scene mm-hmm. where they're just like, they are as Jewish as can possibly be in that sense of humor actually written by Jewish people. And it is a very funny scene of watching them sort of like go through these cliches of the Jewish mom and stuff, but in a very clever, well-written, well-performed way that, that I, I thought I had to stop and show, rewind and show my wife. I thought it was so funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that, that's good stuff. There is some real good stuff in here, but nobody's going to be remaking this or anything very any <laughs> anytime soon. Is one of those movies you you pull your dad out and go, "Hey, did you ever see this?" Or maybe your granddad these days, yeah. uh, and go like, "Oh my god, I remember that movie. I, I took my first date with your mom to that movie." It feels like that kind of movie. Um, an interesting little piece of history that is worth revisiting, but you'll probably forget about it relatively quickly too. Um, I'm glad Kino Lober put it out, though. I tend to like these sort of things. And there's um, not a lot of extra features. A new audio commentary by a critic and film historian, Lee Gambin, who takes a look, deconstructing it, comparing it to the original play, uh, and talking about a lot of the the trends so, uh, sociologically happening at this point, which is really that trans that that transfer point of the, as the sixties, the, the 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 free love era, all these things sort of clashing with an older generation's sensibilities that indeed want to that older generation that wanted to seem hip but doesn't quite get it. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, yep, yeah, I, I thought that was perfectly fine. Uh, moving on to a film that is really considered by many scholars of film to be an all-time comedy classic. And I'm so glad that I finally got to see this. This is the not the first of, but considered to be the high point in the whole series of road movies by Bing Crosby and Bob Hope and Dorothy L'Amour, who are in lo- more or less all three of them are in all. I think Dorothy L'Amour is in almost all of them as well as the, as the love interest for Bing Crosby. Um, this was her 1942 Road to Morocco. Now, I had only seen one of these before, and it was, I found, I was like, eh. And it turns out it was considered to be one of the weakest ones in the series. So it was like, when I, I, was, I saw they were offering this, I looked it up, and it's like, oh yeah, this is by far the high point. I was like, okay, let's give it another shot. And I sure am glad that I did, because this is genuinely a really funny, charming, albeit not really politically appropriate for this day and age, uh, film. Well, see, there are some arguments about that that I thought were interesting, which is that apparently at the time, these were pretty close to what we would call nowadays like parody films. Mm-hmm. They were they were very close to parodying what other adventure movies were doing, with, but with Hope and Crosby. So I've read some arguments that they say basically you can't accuse the road movies of being problematic when all they're doing is aping the problematic things from the movies with which they're making, they're poking fun at. Ah. Um, so they're like, if the cliches are that there are like these sultans and Arabs and harems, and those are the cliches of those films at the time, then this film using those cliches is part and parcel of it being a parody of those films. It's sending up. And I'm, I'm like, I can understand that argument. I can also understand, hey, it's a product of the time, and that's what people thought <laughs> the Middle East was like. <laughs> this, well, this particular one, they're, they're frenemies... Hope and Crosby, as mm-hmm. they always are in these things, who are shipwrecked, and uh, they end up on a beach in uh, near Morocco, and they're in a situation where ultimately uh, Hope is engaged to be married to this uh, Sultan's daughter, I guess, yeah. uh, who's very rich, and he's like, "This is the best," and Crosby's like, basically, like, "I'm not going to let my friend be happy," but. I suspect something is up. And sure enough, something is up because she actually wants to get married to this, uh, this 
Arab leader played by Anthony Quinn, who, because there is a prophecy that her first love, her first marriage will last a very short time and, and that person will die horribly. And then the next marriage will last for the rest of her life and be happy. So the idea is we got to get this first marriage out of the way with some poor schlub. And then I get to be happy with Anthony Quinn. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, Crosby has his own love interest and it, there's a lot of switching back and forth and a lot of really goofy scenes of uh, the set piece movie scenes. But what makes this work is just Hope and Crosby together who are just so funny with their back and forth dialogue. These guys are clearly super close friends. In yeah. fact, I remember when Hope, uh, died, there was a political cartoon that made the rounds with Bing Crosby welcoming him, welcoming him into heaven. Like, hello, old friend, because everybody associated these two together. They did so much stuff together. They were an unassailable comedy team. Yeah. Uh, and this does, this holds up. It's really funny. Yeah, it is really funny. It, uh, they have a kind of a loose improvisational dialogue style where you can tell some of their asides and riffing are just that. Um, Right from the opening song this movie had me, where it's basically breaking the fourth wall and singing about the studio and contracts and the sequels and, and things like that in yeah. the opening song. I was like, all right, this is different than I expected. This is not what you expect there, from a movie from 1940s. The other part that got me was the part where Cros- Bing Crosby's literally like singing sort of a dramatic, quasi-romantic song, and during the bridge... Bob Hope appears as uh, his character's aunt playing a harp because, of course, she's dead, and that's what you play when you're in heaven. (laughs) And she plays the harp during the bridge, and I was like, that's ridiculous. There were little touches of absurdity like that that were just sprinkled through the movie throughout that would catch me off guard just when I thought I had the movie like pegged as a certain way. There'd be like, oh, oh, I guess that camel's going to talk. Or or the scene where they make fun of the fact that musicals are overdubbed by them all switching the singing parts uh, multiple times during the course of the song. Um, Yeah, I I found it absolutely delightful, and I'm glad that there are more of these uh, that I can discover. This is apparently the third one in the series, uh, and, and I think there's like, there's like seven or eight, yeah, something, something like that. that. So I've got, I've got some catching up to do, but man, I really liked this. And yeah, I mean, as far as being like quote unquote problematic in regards to its worldview, it's very much of Hollywood of that time. Um, if that kind of stuff offends you to the point that you can't watch old movies, then you wouldn't be interested in this anyways. Yeah. Um, You're pretty much not not watching anything that came out before five years ago. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, But short of that, uh, the humor really holds up and feels quite modern in a way that I found totally unexpected. Yeah. Um, I, I think this is a real winner of a movie. And the Blu-ray comes with a brand new audio commentary by a film historian. There's a look at... These films overall called Bob Hope and the Road to Success that was very much worth watching. That's sort of the evolution of how these two ended up get working together and the the history of these films and their success, which were quite successful. Uh, yeah, this is a, a solid little package that I, I would highly recommend. Uh, next up, we have Mad Dog and Glory. This is a comedy from 1993 with the very unlikely pairing of Robert De Niro, Uma Thurman, and Bill Murray in a movie together. I always say, great trivia question for any, anybody putting together a movie trivia night is say, what movie features a knockdown, drag out fist fight between Bill Murray and Robert De Niro? Yeah. And people will go, there's a movie that has that? <laughs> 
And like, yes, that movie is 1993's Mad Dog and Glory, directed by John McNaughton, who did a Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Yeah. Uh, the idea here is De Niro is a very shy Chicago Police Department crime scene photographer uh, who everybody calls him Mad Dog as a joke because he's anything but like a, a guy who you would call Mad Dog. He's just such a quiet little man. But um, he saves the life of a mob boss played by Bill Murray during a holdup in a convenience store. And then they have kind of a fun night out hanging out with each other and, and just kind of being friends. Weirdly, uh, Bill Murray's character is has his eyes set on being a stand-up comedian on the side as well, which is an odd little aspect of that the That was film. super played up in the marketing back in the 90s, I remember. Yeah. Like, they really played up like... Oh, he's a gangster who wants to be a stand-up. And then when you watch the movie, that's such a small... There's very little to do with it. I mean, it's one of those... It's an interesting character beat, and there's some things I like early on where even De Niro's kind of feeding him jokes. Yeah. Like, because De Niro... It's seeing the beginning of there's more to this guy than this quiet little man who watches television and goes to sleep every night after his shift. Uh, But in his gift that... De Niro does not want is a young lady, Uma Thurman, who's a bartender who works for him. He's like, she's going to live with you for a week, do whatever you want with her. Uh, she's like, no, I'm not a prostitute. I'm like, even though all her actions would speak otherwise in this particular film. She owes Bill Murray's character money. Yeah, because and she part had to of save the, her brother. Yeah, as part of the debt, she's sort of an indentured servant and... What he has decided he wants her to do for that week is, hey, go uh, go live with this guy. And what makes this movie awkward, ultimately, is that it is supposed to be a cute romantic comedy with, like, sparks between Emma Thurman and the clearly considerably older than her, Robert De Niro. And it's such an uncomfortable situation that the moment they start fooling around and having sex, you're like, this thing is covered in ick and just the very setup of the whole thing. It's like, how would, why would that? And we're supposed to go with this and just be like, oh, all that's fine. And I remember, even from the standpoint of back then, it was taken as people going, that doesn't really sell. (laughs) There's something about that whole setup that is just so, by definition, not charming and uncomfortable that there's no way to make it work. Um, It's a shame. I mean, I think De Niro is playing a very against-type role here. Well, similar to Neighbors, this is one where they decided to switch. Is it? It was not contentious, though, like it was on the set of Neighbors, where it was with Aykroyd and Belushi, I believe it was a much greater argument, but they had ultimate say. This was something where the it was intended for the roles to be switched, and I think before shooting they said, hey, what if we, what if we mix this up? And everybody was sort of like, yeah, sounds good, we're on board for it. Um, but I believe I had read that the, that the roles were intended for yeah, the th- opposite th- parts. I think you are absolutely correct. Um, I don't know if it would have worked any better that way. Like I said, I think there's just something inherently wrong with trying to sell this movie as is this plot as is, it's just, I don't know. Maybe if they had tried to make it goofier, a heightened reality, but it really does try to ground it all the time and make it feel very down to earth and plausible. And that hurts it at least to me. Yeah. I don't know if you felt the same way. Uh, Scorsese was a producer on this as well. And and for a long time, this was apparently like a really hot script. Yeah. Um, I watched a little bit of the bonus features, and Murray talks about it being the best screenplay he'd ever read in his life. And I'm just yeah. like, this movie? Like... This, it's a weak, it's weak sauce. It's, uh, yeah. it's not particularly, it's one of those comedies where nothing's really funny. It's just a comedy by 
by name. You know, it's like, oh, that, that's that's where it lives on the blockbuster shelf, but it's not really funny. Um, even the stuff with Bill Murray trying to do stand-up, it's so not funny. And you're like, this is Bill Murray, one of the funniest people alive, who's in the middle of doing a lot of comedy still at that point, and less the sort of wistful Anderson-ish type and, humorous roles that he came into later. Uh, and it's not funny. From a casting standpoint, I think that Murray's character has to be intimidating. I don't mind De Niro as the quiet cop, but Murray has Murray's character has to be intimidating to other people, and he's not intimidating. You he never reads as Bill Murray playing a gangster. Yeah, um, he never reads as once of anybody that has any like real element of danger to him. Even when he's like kind of manhandling Robert De Niro in certain scenes, I'm like. They really, they really make Murray feel like he's the one. It, it feels like De Niro could have played both roles with a plum, but I don't think Murray, as the gangster, really sells any kind of air of danger or anything like that. That that's clearly on the page, but isn't coming across on film. Yeah, I, I agree. This is awkward. I mean, at its best, young Uma Thurman is as always just. She's just she. It's like she emits light. There was something about her. I remember seeing her for the first time in Dangerous Liaisons and going, yeah. "Who is that actress? She is the it girl of this time." Where everyone was like, "Yeah, if you can get Uma Thurman, get Uma Thurman." She she lights up the screen, and sure enough, she does here. But yeah, it's really gross watching old ass Robert De Niro put his hands on her. So <laughs> I don't yeah. know what to tell you. Uh, there's a commentary with John McNaughton. There's a three and a half minute EPK making of uh, with on set interviews with cast and crew, which is really like. All of these extras, they're interviews that are literally like 30 seconds long, which are very strange things to put on here instead of just compiling them into one featurette. But uh, the one, only one that's worth watching is a three-and-a-half-minute interview that's just billed as a discussion of Mad Dog and Glory, which is basically just Bill Murray entertaining Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese. And it's actually really funny. It's much funnier than anything else in the in the movie, uh, I would say. If you can find that on YouTube or something, just watch that. I was trying to place when that was filmed, because a lot of the stuff was like EPK stuff from the time. Mm-hmm. That felt weird, because Murray's hair is uh, long and almost gray, but it still felt like it was shot in the 90s. But I was like, this wasn't shot around the time that they were making this. I couldn't place when when it was filmed. It looked like it was maybe shot in the late 90s, but then I couldn't figure why <laughs> why they would have shot that in the late 90s um, because it wouldn't have been like a DVD release. Right. I, I, I don't know. I have no idea what that is from. I, I, I was more curious about that than anything else when I watched it. Uh, so we're going to finish off here with two uh, big blockbuster films, one of which I had already seen in the theater and one of which I hadn't. And we're going to start the, with the one I didn't get to see till this new 4K release of Creed 2. Uh, now, I was a big fan of Creed when it came out in theaters, although I still – some people were trying to say this is the best of the Rocky series and those people are insane. Uh, <laughs> it is definitely – Firmly in the upper half of the middle of Rocky films, I would say. Uh, I, I still think the first two Rockies are at the very top with Rocky Balboa right underneath it. And then maybe Creed. Creed 2, unfortunately, falls a little lower on that spectrum, albeit still a very entertaining, although, as you might expect, extremely formulaic and predictable Rocky film. Um here now, of course, Sylvester Stallone has taken on the role as, as the trainer, and our main boxer here, Stallone's getting a little long in the tooth of that sort of thing, despite starring in an upcoming Rambo Final Final Blood, I think they're calling film. Uh, oh. Michael B. Jordan playing the son of Apollo Creed, who, of course, was Rocky's nemesis in the first two films, and later close friend and trainer. And as Adonis Creed, we saw 
the previous film, which was about him. Now he has scored a whole string of victories and he's become the world heavyweight champion. Despite you looking at him going, there's no way you would qualify as a heavyweight. <laughs> You're definitely not even, you maybe are a middleweight, uh, but he's a huge star. Uh, he proposes to his girlfriend played by the lovely and talented Tessa Thompson. Um, everything is coming up Adonis for sure. But meanwhile, Ivan Drago, uh-oh, flashback to Rocky IV. Uh, he was the guy who killed Adonis' father, Apollo Creed, played, of course, by Dolph Lundgren, who is in both these big blockbuster films we're going to be talking about. Um, we find out that his life was destroyed in Russia by losing to Rocky. Like, mm-hmm. his wife, Bridget Nelson, Nielsen, who also appears in this briefly, had left him over it. Uh, he was just left with nothing but his young son, who now is all grown up and kind of a badass monster-sized fighter himself, and he has been training his son specifically to come back and take on uh, Adonis Creed in order to regain the glory for his family. And it, like every Rocky film, it looks like he's going to succeed. <laughs> you know, there's the ups and downs and the, oh, our guy loses. But now he's got to come back now that he's shed his ego and win. It's exactly what you think it's going to be. But that doesn't stop it from having a third act that you are like 100% heart thumping, like excited for, like edge of your seat watching that last big fight going, come on, dodging back and forth going, oh, hit him. Oh. <laughs> it's fun. It just doesn't have the immediacy or even the, what's the word I'm looking for? There's a lot of stuff that felt like it could have been cut out in the straight drama sequences here um, that just dragged the film down in the middle in the first act, I thought. Um, and the fact that is, other than that, also so formulaic, not a lot of surprises. You, you put it significantly lower than Creed, but I still enjoyed it. It has the it has to do the work of being both a sequel to Creed and a sequel to Rocky Four. Mm-hmm. So sort of Creed, it is Creed Two. It's also Rocky Four Part Two, and then the structure is almost borrowed wholesale from Rocky Three, mm-hmm. which is uh, fighters reached a place of cockiness. There's somebody that comes out of the woodwork and is like, "I want to challenge you," and the person sort of underestimates uh, that that particular challenge. And in, in Rocky Three, it being Clever Lang, in this case, it being Drago. Um, so again, yeah, it hits some very familiar beats. I feel like the dramatic stuff, if anything, compared to Creed is that they feel obligatory in this film and they don't feel fully formed. I did not like Tessa Thompson sort of being relegated to like a wife slash mother role. Yeah. Considering how much of what makes Creed feel special and different was the examination of their relationship, mm-hmm. how it kind of mirrors the original Rocky and you get to see the courtship of Rocky and Adrian. Um, I like that Creed has a completely different relationship than Rocky and Adrian, but still has those relationship beats. And those beats are interesting in Creed. I think by just making her be like, oh, uh, she's a musician and she's slightly more popular than she was in Creed and um, they're going to start a family. And it's like even some of the weight of some of the things that the implications that are brought up with them trying to start a family are they f- they feel obligatory. Whereas I feel like in Creed that um, 
I feel like uh, what's the director's name? It's um, of the first Creed. Yeah, I'm completely. Oh, um, um, the same guy who did yes. a lot of other who did Black Panther. Yes, um, Kugler. Kugler. Yeah, Ryan yes. Kugler. I feel like I feel like some of the stuff about starting a family that Kugler would have given an emotional weight and heft. And, and equalized with the drama of the fights themselves, because he kind of does that with their relationship in Creed. And I think that part of the reason that they felt draggy to you in this one is because they, they feel so half-assed. Well, and yeah, this um, is handed off to Stephen Capel Jr., who, despite being named by Forbes in 2017 as one of the 30 under 30 in Hollywood and entertainment, doesn't really have an impressive history of things that he's done. Look, I was like, wow, this is basically a bunch of little kid stuff, like Prentice and Fury's Ice Cream Adventure. What? That's the guy you get to do Creed 2? Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, apparently, like, he's directed uh, episodes of Grownish, the the, the spinoff to Blackish. I don't know. I've not seen it. I cannot speak. But I was immediately like, so, Coogler, who I understand is a hot property and no guarantee of getting, but everyone was going, okay, Stallone, are you going to step back, step back into the directorial chair for this one? Are you going to direct it? Why he didn't has passed me. I mean, we knew it was his last... I mean, they make... This is not... I'm not saying he dies. I'm saying that the movie has a sort of, like, him going... They feel like they close the door. They close the door on his character being involved anymore in not a a, a fatality sort of way. And he's even said, yes, this will be my last Rocky film. We'll see whether or not that's true. But this seems like the one you'd want to direct. Why give it to a nobody? Yeah. And I feel like the film is really hurt by that. It's a shame. He directs fighting scenes well, though. Yeah. It's, it's, as far as hitting the beats of a satisfying, it's a satisfying sequel. It's a satisfying boxing movie. Um, it does not have the magical X factor that Creed had going for it. Yeah. Um, there's something, there's something Creed had that made it feel very special. This doesn't feel very special. But is perfectly worthy as a as a entry in the Rocky series overall, and it is you know it's a damn good boxing movie. Yeah, agreed. Uh, so if you get this, 4K looks terrific. Uh, there are some extra features here: fathers and sons, which it is uh, you know focusing on the father son theme that runs throughout this, uh, with a lot of the actors involved discussing it. There's casting Victor Drago, which is Ivan Drago's son, Florian Muntau, Muntino, I think is how you say his name who is himself like a, a real fighter who is not really much of an actor, but he doesn't honestly have a lot to say anyway in this film. So there you go. He mainly has to look uh, pained when his father says something disapproving and angry. Those yeah. are the two phases he has to do. And he does just fine. There's the woman of the women of Creed to Felicia Rashad and Tessa Thompson talking about their characters. Uh, there's Rocky's legacy, which is a 15 minute sequence hosted by Dolph Lundgren talking about the history of the franchise. And then there's a little under 10 minutes of deleted and extended scenes. I thought all of which were well worth watching that as much as I'm like, they could have deleted a lot of the dramatic stuff from here, uh, the non, you know, fighting or training sequences. This is more of that, but it's all good stuff. Some of it I thought is much better than the stuff they actually um, left in the movie. There's a sequence where post-fight uh, Creed and, and Victor Drago have like a nice moment in the locker room together that I really liked. It's like, that's a, that's a shame. That felt missing from the movie. Yeah. The one thing that you're like, why isn't that there? Because it was on YouTube, 
there is a sequence that was filmed where Sylvester Stallone and uh, Ivan got into a, a fist fight on the street, which you spend the whole movie going, that's got to happen at some point, right? They've got to come to blows at some point. They never do. It was cut. It's not here. Very curious as to why. Hmm. We know it exists. You can Google it and find it yourself, but it seems like an odd thing to leave it up. But yeah, Creed 2 is it's, it's good. It's just not great. Should have been great. It's not. Uh, our last film is Aquaman, another Dolph Lundgren vehicle. Yes. <laughs> um, this, of course, is the sixth installment in the DC Extended Universe live action films, um, directed by James Wan, who certainly has made quite a name for himself as a director and producer. I saw Annabelle in this one. What? Annabelle is in Aquaman, yes. Shut up. Yes. Really? Yes. Where? It's right after there's the big ocean catastrophe, and there's a scene where it's sort of like skimming the ocean floor, and there's all this debris and trash from the catastrophe. And I don't know how I missed it in theaters, but at home I was like, clear as day, one of the pieces of debris dead center in the screen is Annabelle. That's funny. I totally missed that. Uh, But he also brings along another piece of detritus from his career, Patrick Wilson, playing Mm -hmm. uh, main bad bad guy Ocean Master. Patrick Wilson has been in a lot of James Wan films, to say the least. Um, Okay, you guys have probably already seen this by now. We went out on about this at length on the site. Uh, I am the only person from the original review who flat out said, this is not good. Uh, not good at all. It's entertaining in a this is bad but cute. I think Jason Momoa is the right guy for this role. He's terrific and charismatic. I think he has very little, if any, chemistry with Amber Heard here, who I think found to be somewhat bland and has a terrible wig. (laughs) Oh, my God. Her and Nicole Kidman both have the worst wigs. Um, The effects are sometimes really great, sometimes a complete mess. Uh, I think there's an early Nicole Kidman fight scene that for some reason they shot in a strange revolving fisheye lens way that where her limbs constantly look like they're stretching out. And I can only imagine it's because we were having trouble figuring out how to make Nicole Kidman doing super flips and kicking people in the face look real with the CG. So we just chose to do it in this distorted view. Um, there are things I do like about this, and I definitely was not as hard on it rewatching it. And yes, I did rewatch it on 4K at home, and I enjoyed it a little bit more. But I still have a lot of the same big problems I do. I think, I think that Juan was capable of better. I think the DC Universe needed a better film than this, and not one that people are defending under terms like, yeah, I know it's stupid, but it's still fun, which is the way almost everyone defends this movie. Aquaman could have been a really solid across the board movie. And instead it kind of feels like, like a movie that's trying intentionally be campy bad, like in a jokey way. It's like a superhero story set in the universe of finding Nemo, you know, underwater Tron world, uh, <laughs> Atlantis with all these things. Oh, look, that's a ship based on a giant sea turtle. And that's a ship based on a, okay. I don't know. Maybe you, I'm sure you felt everyone seems to disagree with me except Martin Thomas. I, I feel like we're, we're like an invasion of the body snatchers coming out of this movie. Everyone was like, I liked it. We're both like, what's happening? Who, who are you? What did they do with the real pe- critics? But you probably loved it, didn't you? I thought when I watched it theatrically that there would be stuff that was pretty awesome and then it would be followed by things that made me embarrassed to be in a movie theater. <laughs> 
and it, and it kind of kept that beat like the whole time that the movie played there would be something really really cool and then something so dorky as to make me go like what i i still the the scene where they're in like italy and it plays the roy orbison song and it they're like looks like they're in like standing in like 25 feet of green screen and there's like the whole thing about like oh we mentioned pinocchio so a little kid is going to give her a book about pinocchio and like all that stuff is so brutally awful like some of the worst stuff i've seen in any superhero movie well it's it's a it suddenly it goes from finding nemo to the little mermaid in the middle of the film it's that stuff's not very good it's it's it is the movie is created in a way where there is a desperation of we may never get a chance to do a movie like this ever again, so we're literally going to kitchen sink it. Like, <laughs> like we're, every every single bit of like short of Aqualad and Dolphin, every single <laughs> bit of Aquaman lore is packed right. into this. Almost all the conversations are much like Episode One. Almost all of the conversations are political exposition. However, th- this is the best thing I can say about the movie. Uh, somebody asked me after I saw it. I thought, honestly, it's a hell of a lot like episode one, but it doesn't have the weight of three classic movies that took place immediately before it. Right. But in regards to tone and the amount of world building and CG and political ass nonsense that comes out of people's mouths, it's just like all talk about like huge government and yeah. stuff like that, like undersea government. It's characters explaining the government to other characters who presumably already know this information. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so in that way, I was like, it's, it is very much in line with episode one in that some of it's awesome. Some of it's dorky. It's nonstop special effects and nonstop chatter about political affiliations. But, there are not three other Aquamans that are like beloved and with which we can compare them to. So it's the closest we can get to feeling like what if what if episode one just came out of nowhere and there was no like four, five, and six. It was just episode one. And to me, that's what Aquaman is. Okay. And I have to say, when I watched it at home, I watched it with a kid and I forgave the stupid parts much more than I did when I watched it in the theater. Agreed. And, I, and at home, I was like, I, I kind of like this more than I did when I saw it theatrically. I found myself comfortable with the parts that I found super dorky to an almost embarrassing degree theatrically. There were two things going forward. Is one, I knew that it was coming. And two, I could see it through a kid's eyes. And that kind of, like, dorkiness plays different to a kid than it does to an adult. It, it is a big, so, dumb cartoon, yeah. for sure. It's, like, I forget the name of the YouTube show. Very funny comedy series where they, they deconstruct movies with, like, a co- comedic narrator. But they did one on this where he's like, we couldn't figure out which Aquaman story to tell, so we just told all of them. <laughs> which really is, like, 80 little plots yeah. crammed together. And it felt like the pitch meeting was this. It's like Black Panther, except instead with black people, it's wet white people. (laughs) (laughs) Who wouldn't love that? Yeah. I mean, they're trying so hard to make this, like, it feels like they're trying really hard to make their version of Black Panther. And it is no Black Panther, for sure. Uh, Well, very least, like I said, once again, full credit to Jason Momoa, who is just one of those, he's just a lovable big lug. It's hard not to like Jason Momoa. And even though he gets given some 
really clunky dialogue and even humor moments that don't work at all in this. There's plenty that do, and he's a super capable action actor, uh, to be very clear. Uh, one thing I would like to point out that I found that I liked best about this was the bonus features. The bonus features are a lot of fun, and there's quite a bit of them on here, of the, you know, much more than an EPK. Clearly, a lot of work was made into assembling a very tight sequence uh, of series that are all about, like, from, like, 7 to 20 minutes long on every little aspect of the film about each group of characters. And they're fun, especially the one that's just about becoming Aquaman, the first one, 13 minutes of Jason Momoa, and showing why everybody loves him so much. He's a big, goofy kid who's also a, a, like a real loyal family man type. Did you know he was married to Lisa Bonet? I, probably, I think I knew that and forgot. Yeah, she's like 12 years older than him, I think, but they yeah. have two kids together and seem to be super happy. There was a thing for his birthday they show in here. They, they brought in a, uh, a Hawaiian... I, I, I forget what they call them, like a troop, a dance troop type thing. They do that, oh, you know, dancing. Oh, the haka. Yeah, yeah, the haka. And he was, like, just losing his mind, excited, happy about it, with his actual son having been there and learned the routine along with the yeah. people to do it. And I was like, that's super sweet. You really go, I like this guy. Watch He's not the world's greatest actor, but he feels like a guy you'd like to have a beer with, you know? <laughs> and that's important for this type of movie. Um, but overall, the bonus features, yeah, they are a lot of fun. There's even one uh, with the actor Yaha, Yaya, I don't know how you say his name, Yah. Yeah, it's Y-A-H-Y-A. It seems like it'd be Yaya, but that can't be right, can it? Um, uh, but uh, I'll just say Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, who plays Black Manta, the secondary villain in oh, this. Oh, the guy that's playing Candyman, yeah. Yeah, the guy who's going to be playing Candyman. Um, he is the one doing the, the the sit sit you down and talk to you about the comic book history of Black Manta as a character and then how they decided to change him and make him for the film. And clearly he's just having a, a ton of fun doing it. It's fun to watch him getting excited about it, going like, yeah, this is so cool. I get to wear that outfit. Badass. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I've actually, it's one of those few things for a movie like this where they spend a lot of time assembling these bonus features to make them genuinely fun to watch. And I big thumbs up to that because it seems like all too often these things are just an afterthought. There are, however, no deleted scenes here, as mentioned earlier. <laughs> uh, there is a three and a half minute sneak peek of Shazam, which is coming out in about two weeks, which I'm incredibly looking forward to. Probably my most anticipated DC film. And it's just <sighs> an ex- it's just just a, the scenes we've seen in the trailer with him trying to figure out his powers with a little bit in between filled in. So it's nothing like super new and, and re, re, uh, revelatory. But hey, I, I, I can't wait to see it. My friends who have seen it are already raving about it, saying it's the best film in the DCEU so far. I've seen it Saturday. <laughs> I, I, I know some things. Of, I the toy aisle spoiled some things that are not in the marketing at all. There's apparently a lot of things that are being kept completely out of the marketing. Ah. Um, which if you've read the Jeff Johns new 52 run, it's looking like the film follows that far more literally than any of the marketing has let on. Okay. Now I hate that run, but I hate that run for a very specific reason. I hate it because Billy Batson's a, a shithead in, mm. in John's run. Cause John's, is going, okay, if a kid was homeless, what would he be like? Uh, he'd probably be tough because he'd have to fend on his own, so I'm going to write Billy Batson like he's a little asshole. I hate Jeff John's Shazam. But 
the trailers already are letting me know, like, the no, trailers haven't made that kid look like a shithead. Right. And so if the kid isn't a shithead, I'm fine with all the other trappings of the Jeff John stuff. I'm not a big fan of Dr. Savannah, uh, the John's version where he has, he can like see magic and he looks more like Lex Luthor and he's not the little Weasley guy. Like, I like little Weasley mad scientist Savannah sure. more than magical Lex Luthor Savannah. But I would have loved to see Neil Patrick Harris come in with heavy makeup oh, and play that part. <laughs> but, as long as they, as long as Billy Batson is a sweet kid, yeah, that's that's what I ask for, and that's what the trailer show. It, it seems so, like that's what they're selling. So that's us. that's the that's my biggest hurdle in regards to them adapting the new Fifty Two Shazam. But anyways, uh, yeah, if you don't if you want to go in unspoiled, don't go to the toy aisle like I did because I was like, <laughs> oh crap, I had no idea that all this. Anyways, it's not in the marketing. So so final thoughts on Aquaman though. It's, Shazam is going to be so good. Uh, <laughs> uh, the final thoughts on Aquaman. You know, as far as like, it is a fantastic 4K release. It is a colorful movie. Um, you know, you and I talked before we recorded about how the 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 actual aspect ratio changes when it's underwater. It's full frame, and when it's uh, on land, it's like two thirty five to one. I really liked how it opened up the frame for the underwater scenes at home. It was really cool. Um, you already know if you like this movie or not. Nothing I say is going to change your mind one way or the other. But it is a, a gorgeous uh, 4K buy. So if you're looking for something to, to show off to people, that's one that, you know, again, the colors pop. And, and to me, I, it might have looked better than my theatrical experience with it. I, it looks really, really good. So, uh, And that is it for this episode's a super long episode of Digital Noise. But that's because we did have an awful lot of stuff to cover. Uh, I will be back early next week with a, another episode with Aaron, which will also be a super long episode because he got a giant stack of stuff to cover as well. Thank you for your patience. Please click on the links on the actual page on oneofus.net with the images of the Blu-rays and DVDs to buy them or to buy anything through Amazon because we get a nice little kickback whenever you start from one of our links. And uh, until then, let us know what you think and whether you agree or disagree with us on this stuff. We'd love to hear from you. Oh, and check out John at... I'm back on Twitter. Okay. At Golson, at G-H-O-L-S-O-N. There you I go. I just started my own Redbubble store because I've had people ask me for prints of stuff. And so uh, and so if you look up on Redbubble, if you search Golson, I've just started the storefront, so I've only got a couple things on there. Um, but that's currently what I'm pimping. All right, now. There you go. Do that. <laughs>